We have with us tonight John Hunter. John is uh, the associate editor of the Madison, Wisconsin Capital Times and uh, a longtime Civil War buff. Uh, I think he eats and sleeps Civil War when he isn't working. And uh, a perennial tour member, longtime friend in uh, the Chicago Civil War Roundtable and its members and has spoken to us previously. We're going to speak uh, to us tonight, Jefferson Davis. And uh, John, it's your turn. Thank you, Mike. I'm delighted to be here. I feel like I'm at home. I've traveled the Civil War battlefields with many of you for 19 years. And we've been on some great and glorious experiences. I, I, people say I'm in love with the Civil War. I'm no more in love with it than you people are. But I'll tell you some of the dearest, most precious moments of my life have been spent in your company in the southern battlefields. And this is something that I will treasure all my life. And to come here to talk to you tonight about the President, uh, I, I'm glad to do that. Let me tell you that I'm a, a reconstructed rebel. I, my grandfather rode with John Mosby. Uh, I knew him. I had the pleasure of talking to him he was very old and I was very young. Uh, I never had much use for Jefferson Davis. Uh, like many Southerners, uh, I think most of the South blamed Davis for the loss of the war. And he was a scapegoat, certainly was a psychological scapegoat. The fact that I didn't think much of Davis got me interested in the man. And I decided to spend some time. I spent about two years with Jefferson Davis trying to put flesh and blood in this ghost, this man, this phantom, this mystery. I didn't know when I started whether he founded the Ku Klux and when I was halfway through it, I didn't know whether he was the first member of it or the second member. I am now convinced that he was neither. The strangest thing about Jefferson Davis is how much his life is connected with the Middle West and how much of it's connected with Wisconsin. There's several things I want to talk about tonight. Some of the things I want to put to rest if I can. One of them is a matter of how Davis was dressed when he was captured. Now you may not think or somebody may not think or somebody else may think this is not important. But by God, for almost a hundred years, 90% of the country thought that Jefferson Davis was captured wearing a hoop skirt. I propose to tell you tonight that that was a damn lie. While on detached service in the summer of 1829, I think I camped one night about the site of Madison. The nearest Indian village was on the opposite side of the lake. Nothing, as I think, was known to the garrison at Fort Winnebago about the four lakes before I saw them. Indeed, sir, it may astonish you to learn, in view of the densely populated condition of the country, 
that I and a file of soldiers who accompanied me were the first white men who ever passed over the country between Portage of the Wisconsin and Fox Rivers and the then village of Chicago. This was taken from a letter from Jefferson Davis to John Davy Butler in the archives of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin and reprinted in volume 10 of the Wisconsin Historical Collections. Indeed, as I said, one of the most intriguing aspects of the life of Jefferson Davis is his connection with Wisconsin. He met and courted his first wife, Sarah Knox Taylor, the daughter of Zachary Taylor in Wisconsin at Prairie du Chien. And after the fall of the Confederacy, one of his captors was from Wisconsin, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Harnden. And by a strange twist of fate, one of the soldiers assigned to guard him during his imprisonment at Fortress Monroe was a young Racine second lieutenant named William Upham, newly graduated from West Point, where he had been sent by President Lincoln. Upham, you may not know, was to become Wisconsin's 17th governor, and his son, William Upham II, has been a speaker at the Madison Civil War Roundtable. Seventeen years ago, the late Alan Oakey and I drove up to Washera County in central Wisconsin and climbed the balcony of a country school near Wild Rose to be shown a bell from Briarfield, Jefferson Davis's Mississippi plantation, that a local historian solemnly assured us had been captured by Wisconsin soldiers after the fall of Vicksburg. In 1829, Jefferson Davis, fresh out of military academy at West Point, came to Wisconsin as a brevet second lieutenant assigned to Fort Crawford at Prairie du Chien on the Mississippi River. He was also stationed at Fort Winnebago at Portage and spent nearly five years in the Wisconsin frontier. But since I have purposely limited the scope of my talk to those first tragic years after the fall of the Confederacy, I will not spend much time with the incredibly wide-ranging activities of Jefferson Davis, but for those who need a small calendar to remind them of the dates, let me give you the following. June the 3rd, 1880. In the present Kentucky community of Fairview near Hopkinsville, not far from the Tennessee border, Jefferson Davis was born. Two years later, his family moved to the Mississippi Delta country below Vicksburg. 1824, appointed to West Point. 1828, Davis, handsome, light-haired, 5'11", graduated from the military academy. He stood only 23rd in a class of 33. 1829, after three months at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, Davis was transferred to Fort Crawford with his black body servant, James Pemberton, one of the family slaves. Later that year, Davis was assigned to duty at Fort Winnebago, where, at Portage, where he delighted in taking part in the social life of the frontier post. The highlight of the military life came when the frontiersmen brought their wives and daughters into the Winnebago gumballs. 
The name came from a refreshment which consisted of bowls of hot gumbo served with copious bread. The young lieutenant enjoyed stepping up to the frontier fiddle tunes like The Moon is Rising, Jenny, Come Away. 1831. Brevet Colonel Zachary Taylor assigned to Fort Crawford and made Davis his aide. 1832. The Black Hawk War. The governor of Illinois called out the militia, 1,300 horsemen, 300 foot soldiers, to do battle with Black Hawks. Captain of militia from Sangamon County. Davis was reported present at the Battle of Wisconsin Heights near Sauk City in April 27, 1832. I no longer believe this is true. He was on a visit to uh, to Briarfield in Mississippi. He couldn't have been at the Battle of, 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 of Wisconsin Heights. He came back afterwards. He reported back to Prairie du Chien at Fort Crawford and was assigned to escort Black Hawk to Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. Black Hawk was later transferred to Fort Monroe, Virginia, the place where Mr. Davis himself was imprisoned for two years after Appomattox. 1834, Mr. Davis began his courtship of Knox Taylor, the 18-year-old daughter of the future president of the United States, old rough and ready. Sarah was known as Knox by her family. There is an unconfirmed report, and it's a small asterisk in my notes, and I'll mention it because it is a small asterisk, asterisk but there are unconfirmed reports that Davis was the father of a son by a young Indian woman. I can't confirm that, and I shouldn't even tell it, but I, because I want to be honest with history, I mentioned the asterisk. 1835, <coughs> Davis resigned from the Army to marry Knox Taylor in Louisville. Stories that he eloped in defiance of her father are unsupported. Knox died of malaria three months later in Briarfield, the Davis Plantation. She was 21 years old. 1845, after three years as a recluse, Mr. Davis met and married Verena Howell. The newly married cotton grower was elected to the House of Representatives in the fall of 1845. 1846, <coughs> volunteered for duty in the Mexican War and earned honors in the Battle of Monter Battles of Monterey and Buena Vista. 1847, chosen by the Mississippi Senate to represent the state in the United States Senate. 1852, joined the cabinet of President Franklin Pierce as the Secretary of War. 1857, returned to the United States Senate. 1861, resigned from the Senate February 10th, notified he had been chosen President of the Confederacy. Here is a description of Davis after his inauguration. It was written by Frank Vandiver, a friend of many of ours, a talented present-day historian of the Civil War. After his inaugural, Vandiver said in his 1964 lecture at Oxford College, a typical Davis kind of a speech, precise, legalistic, stiff, he set about filling the multiple roles of his office diplomat, chieftain, executive politician, the conscience of his country. Certainly he looked the kind of a man to fill each of these roles gracefully.
all his ascetic features always composed in icy calm, Davis had the assurance of breeding and the hauteur of caste. His voice was pleasant and modulated in genteel range. Controlled, unruffled, aloof he seemed, undiminished by emotion. Appearances in his case were most deceiving. Beneath this careful symmetry there lurked another Jefferson Davis, a different, passionate man of matchless courage and patriotism, a man revealed in rare moments of his fiery argument, moments when his soft voice rose, his long hands waved in emphasis, his eyes flashed, his whole body tensed in terrible devotion. End of quote. On April 2nd, 1865, after four long years of war, Jefferson Davis received word from General Lee that he was forced to evacuate Petersburg, leaving Richmond exposed to attack. Let me just stop there for one minute to tell you one of the damnedest things I ever discovered in a life filled in reading Civil War history. I have a set of the journals of the Confederate Congress. I read these journals when I prepared this speech, prepared this Jefferson Davis thing, to find out what tensions were occupying these men in these final catastrophic days of the fall of the Confederacy. What in the hell were these men doing when the world was falling down around them? And here's what I found out. On the last day the Confederate Senate met, they argued for three hours about whether they should have, no, not three hours, 30 minutes. They argued whether they should have subscriptions to 10 newspapers delivered to their desk every day or five newspapers delivered to their desk every day. <laughs> Believe it or not. Sending his wife and children on ahead, the president moved the government to Danville, where it remained until April 10th when a weary dispatch writer told him General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. The government fled south to Greensboro, North Carolina, to come under the protection of General Joseph E. Johnston's troops, retreating, as you know, before Sherman's forces. Now, any of you that know about the breakup of the Confederacy, anybody you know when Richmond fell, and Davis going down south, when I talk about the, 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 the Davis's flight, you know, a lot of people were fleeing from something they didn't, they knew not. My grandfather, who was captured and spent his time in a, in a federal, he was captured at Gentilly, spent his time in a federal prison. After the war was over, he didn't even go back to Virginia. He started out and landed in Death Valley, California. He wanted to get so damn far away from the Civil War that nobody had ever talked to him about it again. Well, he didn't stay there. He stayed there for 10 years carried water into the Death Valley to uh, borax deposits that somebody was, was uh, developing out there, and they carried the deposits up in 20 mule teams. And he, he was one of the mule drivers for a while. Greensboro citizens, fearful of federal retaliation, declined to house the high-ranking Confederates. <coughs> All but Davis was forced to sleep in railroad cars. While negotiations continued, Davis, with an escort of 3,000 of Wade Hampton's cavalrymen, who slipped out before Johnson could surrender, moved southward to Charlotte. 
It was here that Davis learned of the assassination of President Lincoln. I am sorry, he said. We have lost our best friend in the court of the enemy. Fate had dealt the South another mocking blow. During the ceasefire while Sherman consulted with Washington, Davis wrote to Verena that he intended to force his way into Texas. If nothing can be done there, which it would be, will be proper to do, then I can go to Mexico and have the world from which to choose a location, Davis wrote to his wife. Davis urged Johnson to refuse to surrender and to move southward. The President's party began its faithful journey toward capture. In addition to Hampton's troopers, one of the brigades that joined the party at Charlotte was the remnant of that famous raider who had created terror in Ohio under John Hunt Morgan and was now commanded by Brigadier General Basil Duke. The retreat resembled a triumphant tour. Women and children threw flowers in the path of the entourage. On April the 29th, near North Yorkville, South Carolina, the president met with the four remaining officers of his cabinet and discussed the most practicable route to Texas. They reached Abbeville on May 2nd, where Davis was rejoined by his wife and four children, including Winnie, known as Pie, short for her nickname, Pie Cake, Maggie and the two boys. Maggie was Verena uh, uh, Howell's sister. As they pushed further south, farther south, the dissenters began to take their departure, one by one. The cavalry grew restless at the prospect of becoming homeless wanderers in Texas and Mexico. The men were paid off and discharged in Washington, Georgia. Only one of the cabinet members remained with David, John H. Reagan of Texas, the Postmaster General. One of the most controversial aspects of the flight of the president was the story of the so-called Confederate treasure train. In 1881, an embittered Joseph Johnson, who never did like David, by the way, never did like him, David didn't like him, and you know what David did to him, was interviewed by Frank A. Burr, a highly reputable reporter for the Philadelphia Press. He charged that Davis was responsible for missing species amounting to over $2 million. Now mind you, this is 1881. The story caused an uproar, north and south, and in the opinion of pro-Davis people, ruined Johnson's reputation. Ex-Postmaster General Reagan, who had acted as treasurer on the flight, gave an itemized account of the treasury. All that remained of the Confederacy's treasury when it left Richmond together with private funds of the Richmond banks was some $500,000 in double eagle gold pieces, silver bricks, gold ingots, and silver coins packed in bags and boxes which left Richmond under the guard of 60 young midshipmen from their trading ship the Patrick Henry on the Upper upper James. Some of you have seen, as I have, the Patrick Henry's mooring place down below Drury's Bluff. The Confederate treasurer, vastly overrated by Henry Halleck, 
the federal general at $5 million, ended up at an Abbeville railroad station. Basil Duke was instructed to load it on the wagons. He found the treasure in open boxcars, packed in small iron chests, money belts, shot bags, and various boxes. The president ordered that the silver coin, amounting to $108,000, be paid to the departing troops in partial discharge of their back pay. Each brigade received about $32 per capita, officers and men sharing alike. In the quaint old town of Washington, Georgia, which dates from the revolutionary days, President Davis performed his last authoritative act by commissioning as acting treasurer of the Confederacy young Captain M.C. Clark of Richmond. Reagan delivered the part of the treasure belonging to the Richmond banks, some $230,000, to proper agents who temporarily stored it in a local bank. The silver bunion, worth about $30,000, was stored in a warehouse. John A. Semple, a Navy, naval officer, was given $86,000 to take to Savannah or Charleston, concealed in the false bottom of a carriage. The gold was destined for Confederate agents in Nassau, Bermuda, or Liverpool. It was later safely taken to Canada. The remaining gold species, amounting to $35,000, was turned over to Clark. Some distance from Washington, Georgia, Clark gave each of the presidential aides and Colonel Charles E. Thornburn, the purchasing agent of the Confederate Navy, $13,000 in gold for expenses on route to Texas, plus $10 in silver. Reagan asked for and got $3,500 for himself and the president, who carried no money at all. Hudson Strode, who wrote a, the excellent four-volume series on Davis, published in the late 1950s and 1960s, wrote that the president gave away his last pocket money, a $10 gold coin, to a tearful Georgia mother who greeted him with the information that her son had been named in Jefferson in honor of the president. Clark was commissioned to take the remaining 32, I'm sorry, the remaining $25,000 straight on to Madison, Florida to be used in arranging departure for Nassau if that became necessary. I have dwelt with this matter of the Confederate Treasury in some detail because of the circulation of the rumors that the president was running away with millions of dollars worth of money and species. Anybody familiar with the later life of the Davis family knows that until the courts finally returned his, sorry, his Mississippi land, Briarfield, his estate in the early 1880s, the family was always, nearly always strapped for money. If he had kept the treasure, it was never obvious. And there's a moving, moving incident in the last few hours before his capture at Washington in, North, in, 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 in Washington in Georgia. Frank Visitelli, a beautiful, talented <coughs> artist for London Illustrated News, 
who had come south with Davis and come to admire the man, as he was leaving him, reached down into his pockets and pulled out a 50-pound sterling uh, note and gave it to Mr. Davis to help him pay for his expenses on the rest of his flight. That 50-pound note is still in existence. It's now down in the museum at Fortress Monroe. It was in the War Department for over a hundred years. It was taken from Mr. Davis when he was captured by Colonel Pritchard from the 4th Michigan, who kept it for a year, and then either his conscience or the government got the best of it, and he turned it over to the United States government. Of course, the rumors were also spread by the federal authorities who issued orders that for the capture of the president, dead or alive, and posted a $100,000 reward. The government also instructed the searchers that they would be permitted to keep the so-called treasure. After two nights of riding, the Davis party and the Clark treasure party separated at Sandersonville, unaware that a proclamation had been signed by President Andrew Johnson ordering his arrest. Both Pritchard and Harden, one, one of the real controversies about the capture of Davis was the fact that, by God, the two separate Union detachments fought a pitched battle in the night before Davis was captured. Uh, each of them think they were, atta were attacking uh, Confederate troops. The guy from Wisconsin, Henry Harnden, he's a little footnote in history, but he, he plays an important part in the Davis story. He led the 4th Wisconsin, the 1st Wisconsin Cavalry that was in on the Davis capture. He and Pritchard from the 4th Michigan later were to share the prize money for, not the prize money, that there wasn't any prize, but the reward money offered by Congress. Each of them got $30,000 a piece, I'm sorry, each of them got $3,000 a piece, and the troopers each got $500 a piece. Both Pritchard and Harnden were to share the reward. At daylight on the 11th of May, 1865, a few hours after this skirmish between the 4th Michigan and the 1st Wisconsin, the president was apprehended by Pritchard's unit. It was Harnden, Harnden, who made the first claim that Davis had been captured wearing one of his wife's dresses. And let me say to the honor of Mr. Harnden, Colonel Harnden, he was a brevet brigadier general after the war, that he spent the rest of his life trying to put the rumor down. It was so, this rumor that he was captured wearing one of his wife's dresses was so exciting that General Wilson, J.H. Wilson, we all know that guy. Tell me how great guy he was, I in some ways. In other ways, he was a damn son of a bitch. <laughs> Telegraph. I don't mind what they say about the president of the Confederacy, but my God, they ought to quit telling he was wearing a hoop skirt. Telegraph Harmon's reports of Washington, and the news of the capture spread like wildfire over the country. The New York Herald on May 15th carried a four-column story on page one with a sensational headline, such as, He disguises himself in wife's clothing. 
The next day, a long, disparaging editorial in the same paper claimed he slipped into his wife's petticoat, crinoline and dress, but in his hurry he forgot to put on her stockings and shoes. One of the most circulated cartoons of the time was published in Harper's Weekly on May 27th. The cartoon entitled Jefferson Davis as an Unprotected Female showed the Confederate president in a hoop skirt surrounded by jeering Union soldiers. The truth of the matter falls somewhat short of the rumor. Here is Mrs. Davis' report on the incident written a month after the capture. Quote, knowing he would be recognized, I pleaded with him to let me throw over him a large waterproof which he often had often served him in sickness during the summer season for a dressing gown, and which I hoped might so cover his person that in the gray of the morning he would be unrecognized. Now there is no doubt, nobody is disputing the fact that there was an attempt to disguise Mr. Davis that morning. As he strode off, I threw over his shoulders a little black shawl which was around my own shoulders, seeing that he could not find his hat. And after he started, sent my colored woman after him with a bucket of water, hoping that he would pass unobserved. That's Miss Davis. Now let me just back up and give you... J.H. Wilson's account of this, written in 1865-1867, it's in the official records, in volume 49, series 1, part 1. Uh, During the firing of the skirmishers, Lieutenant J.G. Dickinson, adjutant of, now here's a villain in the piece, adjutant of the 4th Michigan, I mean Wilson, not this guy. Attention was called by one of his men to three persons in female attire who had apparently just left one of the large tents nearby and was moving towards the thick woods. The party turned out to be Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Mar- Miss Margaret Howell, and Jefferson Davis. Wilson continued, as friends of, the Dav- as friends of Davis had strenuously denied that he was disguised as a woman, it may not be improper to specify the exact articles of women's clothing which he had upon him when first seen by Lieutenant Munger and Dickens. I'm sorry, Lieutenant Dickens and Corporal Munger. The former states, these are hearsay, that Davis was, quote, one of three persons dressed in women's attire, unquote, and had a black mantle wrapped around his head through the top of which could be seen the locks of his hair. Henry Harnden explained how the hoop skirt story started in his book, The Capture of Jefferson Davis, published in Madison in 1898. And I have a copy of, of the book with me, and as any of you people who are book collectors know, this is a rather rare little thing. It was published 500 of them to give out to the first defense and cavalry as mementos. How did the hoop skirt story get started, Harnden wrote. Then he answers his own question. When we got back to Macon, General Wilson sent for me and made me tell him all about the pursuit and the incidents of the capture of Davis. The general insisted upon every particular as to how he appeared and what he said and how he was dressed, etc. 
After narrating all, I told him that I heard the soldier who halted him, Munger, say that when Davis came out of his tent, he had his white shawl on. This remark of mine was telegraphed north, and when it came back, it had apparently grown into its well-known proportions. How was Davis dressed? Harden asked. He answers this question again. He wore a common slouched hat, nice fine boots, no spurs, coat and pants of light blue English broadcloth. Taking all circumstances into consideration, he was neatly dressed. Harden also recalled that when he rode up and dismounted and saluted, I asked if this was Mr. Davis. Yes, he replied, I am President Davis. At this time, the soldiers set up a shout that Jeff Davis was captured. Up to this time, none of the men who actually arrested him knew that he was Jeff Davis. One soldier said, what? That man, Jeff Davis? Well, that's the old fellow that when I stopped him had his wife's shawl on. Captain G.W. Lawton of 4th Michigan Cavalry, who published an account of the capture in the Atlantic Monthly of September 1865, states, wrote Wilson in the official record, explicitly that Davis, in addition to his full suit of Confederate gray, had on a lady's waterproof cloak, gathered at the waist with a shawl drawn over his head and carrying a tin pail. Captain J.H. Parker, one of the men who contested for the glory of capturing Davis, denied he was dressed as a woman. I am a Yankee, full of Yankee prejudices, but I think it's wicked to lie about him. I saw the whole transaction. Jefferson Davis did not have any garments such on such as worn by women. I defy any person to find a single officer or soldier who will say upon honor that he was disguised in women's clothes. The famous waterproof coat and Verena Davis's shawl that could have proved the story were kept in an iron safe in the Secretary of War's office for 75 years. In 1945, through pressure by a group of Virginians, it was withdrawn and deposited in the National Archive. In 1953, at the insistence of Chester D. Bradley, one of the founders of the Fort Monroe Casemate Museum at Fort Monroe, Virginia, the chief archivist of the War Records Branch made a public photograph of the Raglan type waterproof and the show. In 1961, the General Service Administration announced that the shawl, the raincoat, and the spurs were being sent to Beauvoir, the Jefferson Davis Memorial at Biloxi, Mississippi, in accordance with the wishes of the Davis heirs. I have here an artist's sketch of the raglan overcoat of, that, of the photograph of the overcoat that Davis had on when he was captured. This is a drawn by an artist in my newspaper from an actual photograph. I drew it that big because I wanted it to be big enough for you to see. It can clearly be a woman's raglan coat. I'll let the thing go around if you can't see it in the back of the room. But it's also a raglan, the same kind of a raglan waterproof that many of us wore 
not over 20 years ago when they were in style. While the shawl was clearly a piece of feminine apparel, it was not unlike a shawl worn by Abraham Lincoln. William E. Dodd of Randolph-Macon College, writing in 1906 on the life of Davis, said that the skies almost succeeded in allowing Davis to escape. Well, Davis was standing there. He'd just come out of the tent, obviously contemplating a southern attack on a horseman standing near him. Mrs. Davis seized him fast around the arms and made that feat impossible. Davis actually thought, as you know, of unhorsing this man, this cavalry sergeant who was standing there, and jumping on the horse and riding away. But Mrs. Davis made this feat impossible. The captives were taken to Macon, where General Wilson acceded to the President's request to be taken north to Fort Monroe by water. And when I say the President, I'm talking about Mr. Davis. While they were waiting to board a train for the coast, a northern soldier in the crowd of gapers yelled to the southern onlooker, Hey, hey, Johnny Reb, we've got your president. And the devil's got yours, the rebel shouted shouted back to the sardonic grin. Two days later, the ocean-going side-wheeler William Pete Clyde anchored off Fort Monroe. The captives were taken off the ship and sent to various federal prisons on the East Coast. Vice President Stevens and Reagan were sent to Fort Warren in Boston Harbor. Others were sent to Fort Delaware. The President and Clement Clay were to be imprisoned at Fort Monroe. Its granite walls rose 30 feet, and in some of its solid portions were 95 feet thick. Both men were to remain there for two years. Despite the fact that there was not an armed Confederate soldier east of the Mississippi, the prisoners were landed at the engineer's wharf and passed through a file of soldiers with their arms at the ready, led by Pritchard's cavalrymen. General Nelson Miles, selected for the job by Secretary Stanton and General Halleck, held the president firmly by the right arm. Miles had been selected for the job because he was sharp enough for the function. Stanton, fearing that Miles might not be sharp enough for the occasion, had sent Assistant Secretary of the War, C.A. Dana. He described the casemate cells in the official record. The arrangements for the security of the prisoners seems to be, to be as complete as can be desired. Each occupies an inner room of the casemate. The windows are heavily barred. The sentries stand before each of the doors leading to the outer room. These doors are to be graded, but are now secured by bars fastened on the outside. Two other sentries stand outside these doors. An officer is also constantly on duty in the outer room. His duty it is to see the prisoners every 15 minutes. The outer door of all is locked on the outside, and the key is kept exclusively by the officer of the guard. Two sentries are also stationed without that door. A strong line of sentries cut off all access to the vicinity of the casemate. Another line is stationed on top of the parapet overhead, and a third line is posted across the moat on the counter scarp opposite the place of confinement. Two men, unarmed, old man. A lamp is kept constantly burning in each of the rooms. 
The furniture of each of the prisoners is a hospital bed with an iron bedstead, a chair, a table, and a movable stool closet. A Bible is allowed each man. Big deal. The prisoners are to be supplied with soldiers' rations cooked by the guard. Their linen will be issued to them in the same way. Later that same day, Stanton, or Daniel Wood Stanton, Brevet Major General Miles is hereby authorized and directed to place manacles and fetters upon the hands and feet of Jefferson Davis and Clement C. Clay whenever he may deem it advisable in order to render their imprisonment more secure. Miles jumped at the chance to iron Jeff, as he contemptuously called the The company blacksmith H.C. Arnold prepared heavy leg iron. When the officers attempted to iron the president, he resisted with a frenzy and although ill and feeble, threw the brawny smith across the room. Four sentries were summoned and Davis was thrown on a cot and held down while a blacksmith riveted the clasp around one ankle. The other clasp was locked with a heavy brass lock. When Davis tried to regain his feet, he broke down into tears. It was perhaps the only time anybody had ever seen the President cry. It was anything but a pleasant sight, wrote Captain J.B. Titlow of the 3rd Pennsylvania Artillery and Officer of the Guard. It wasn't anything but a pleasant sight to see. It wasn't anything but a pleasant sight to see a man like Jefferson Davis cry, but not a word did he say. When news leaked out to the newspapers that the captive chief of state had been ironed, it aroused a clamorous disapproval throughout the North. When public opinion reached a crescendo, both here and in Europe, Stanton sent back a peremptory order to General Miles to unshackle the state prisoner. On a Sunday morning, the blacksmith came back and broke the leg irons, which had chained Mr. Davis for five days. For weeks, Davis was allowed to see no one or talk to no one. His guards specifically were specifically forbidden to talk to him. The fort's chief surgeon, Dr. John Craven, was put in charge of the prisoner's health. When this Mrs. Davis wrote to him to inquire about her husband's health, the Secretary of War forbade him to reply. The constant tramp of the sentries the perpetual light shining night and day finally brought Davis to a verge of prostration. His eyesight, weakened by long exposure to the winter snows of Wisconsin years earlier, was visibly affected. He finally was to lose his sight in one eye completely. He was denied the use of knives and forks, and he had to eat his meals with his fingers. Six months after he was locked in the casemate, Dr. Craven prevailed upon the War Department to permit his prisoner to walk on the ramparts. General Miles grasped one arm, the officer of the day the other, and with four guards with bayoneted rifles, the famous prisoner took his first unsteady steps. Permission was granted for the president to correspond with his wife, but both his letters and hers were sent to Washington and censored by the Secretary of the Army before they were delivered. One of the reasons I got interested in this story, I'm thumbing through my, my official records. My wife
wife says, my God, you never read them, and they take up all this space. So I'm coming through them one day, and I came across this account of Davis's imprisonment at Fort Monroe, and I read the damn thing all day long, and I was horrified. It soon became evident that the federal authorities were reluctant to bring Davis to trial. It must not be forgotten that two years before Davis was brought to, was brought to trial, Horace Greeley, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Jarrett Smith had offered themselves as bondsmen for any bail bond which might be required of him. The indictment against Davis found in the circuit court of the United States in the District of Virginia on May 8, 1866, said in part, Jefferson Davis lay to the city of Richmond in the county of Enrico in the District of Virginia aforesaid yeoman, being an inhabitant of and residing within the United States of America, not having the fear of God before his eyes, nor weighing the duty of his said allegiance, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, and wickedly devising, intending the peace and tranquility of the United States of, the, of America, it's all in the official record, to disturb the government of the United States, to subvert and to stir, move and incite insurrection, rebellion, and war against the United States, etc., etc., etc. On the first day of the May term, 1867, at the opening of the U.S. Circuit Court of Richmond, an attorney for Davis filed a writ and was granted a writ of habeas corpus. Davis was brought to Richmond under a military escort on the 13th of May for the bond hearing. His lawyers included three of the nation's best-known barristers, all Yankees, Charles O'Connor and George Shea of New York and William B. Reed of Chicago, I'm sorry, of Philadelphia. William Everts, the Attorney General of the United States, represented the government. But when O'Connor announced the defense was ready for a trial, Everts replied that the case could not be heard at that time, to which the court readily assented. Of course, one of the reasons you know, I know, they didn't want to bring him to trial because the defense, the defense, Davis's defense was going to maintain that the Confederacy had a right to secede from the Union, and Davis therefore was not guilty of the charges of treason and all the devices of the devil and everything else. And of course, the government didn't want to have, didn't want this. This was settled in such a peremptory manner. When the bail was executed, the marshal was directed to release the prisoner after two years, which was done amidst a deafening applause. Outside, the roar went up, the president is bailed, and it re-echoed from street to street, from house to house, according to the eyewitnesses. The president was driven through the crowd to the Spotswood Hotel amid the rejoicing crowd. The rebel yell echoed again along the streets of the capital of the Confederacy. And as the president's carriage approached the hotel, all sounds ceased and a deep silence fell upon the vast crowd. As Jefferson Davis stood up in the carriage preparing to alight, a deep voice shouted, Hats off, Virginians. 
and 5,000 bareheaded men paid silent homage to their president as he entered the hotel. Just a short footnote on history. On Monday, February 15, 1869, shortly after President Johnson published his general amnesty proclamation, the prosecutions were dismissed. Let me read the order of dismissals entered in the Circuit Court of Richmond. It reads like the honor roll of the lost cause. Upon indictment for treason, United States versus Thomas P. Turner, William Smith, Wade Hampton, Benjamin Hugie, Henry A. Wise, Samuel Cooper, G.W.C. Lee, W.H.F. Lee, Charles Mallory, William Mahone, O.F. Baxter, Robert E. Lee, James Longstreet, William E. Taylor, Fitzhugh Lee, George Alexander, Robert H. Booker, John Debray, M.D. Course, Eppa Hunton, you know them all, we've lived with them for years, Roger Pryor, D.B. Bridgeford, Jubilee Early, R.S. Ewell, William S. Winder, George Booker, Cornelius Ball, C.J. Faulkner, R.H. Dulaney, W.N. McVeigh, James A. Seddon, W.B. Richards, J.S. Breckenridge, and Jefferson Davis. The district attorney by leave of the court said that he will not persecute, prosecute further, persecute the better word, on behalf of the United States against the above-named parties upon separate indictments for treason. It is therefore ordered by the courts that the prosecution aforesaid be dismissed. End of quotation. P.S. In 1876, on the 11th anniversary of the end of the war, a bill which would have restored civil rights to all Confederates was before, was before Congress. At the last hour, James G. Blaine, the senator from Maine, whose ambition was to be the next president of the United States, rose to the floor of the Senate and offered an amendment to include the words with the exception of Jefferson Davis. It passed in that form. It was the final blow to the aging president of the Confederacy. Thank you very much.